guest today on Mission Impact is Kristen Bradley Bolt. Kristen runs Roots the Canopy in Durham, North Carolina, where she works with nonprofits to illuminate your vision, extending your vast roots and branches to get there. She consults with nonprofits to develop powerful strategies and plans and develop staff capacity to be wildly successful in making change in the world. Kristen and I talk about how strategic planning processes, when done well, can actually enliven everyone involved and help them reconnect with their why and their purpose in doing the work they do. We explore how the stories organizations tell about themselves are alive and evolving as new people come into the organization, how they can unfortunately sometimes keep people out even unintentionally, and how organizations, especially white-led organizations, need to really deeply listen to the stories of the people and communities they work in and focus on relationship building instead of just jumping in to the next new initiative. So welcome, Kristen. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here, Carol. Thanks for the invite. Um, so just to get us started and, and to kind of give some context for the conversation, um, what would you say drew you to the work that you do? What, what motivates you and what would you describe as your why? I would say that my why is really wrapped up in being extremely curious about people and about nonprofits and really trusting that there is a big why, a big purpose for each of them, right? And and finding that or refinding that is really important and is an ongoing process. So I know for me that my why has changed over time and, um, and it's important for those conversations to happen. And so I just love that I get to work as a consultant and a coach at, at those really juicy places for people and organizations. So yeah, I feel really honored and humbled to be, to be witness to that process and where possible to be of support in those processes. Yeah, and for me, I think one of one of the favorite things about uh, working with organizations for me is when I get to help people reconnect with the why of why they're in the organization, why they're doing the work, and because so often, you know, the day to day, the deadlines, the the grant reports, the everything that everyone has to work on, you can kind of lose sight of that, and to be able to help everyone, you know, articulate or rearticulate why they do the work that they do and what connects them, what, what, you know, why are they excited about it? Why are they passionate about it? Um, it's just fun to kind of see people relight up about, you know, about uh, the hard work that most organizations are tackling. Mm-hmm. Totally agree with you. And, you know, I know that you and I both do a lot of work in the strategy realm. Um, and I think a lot of organizations go into those processes really feeling like, you know, we have to do this. This is something we do every once in a while. We're going to come out with some big old report or hopefully they're not thinking report anymore. But anyway, whatever it is, some deliverable. And like you said, what a good process like that does actually is enliven, right? Help people open their eyes anew to what's possible and and get get that zest um, and commitment back for the work. So yeah, there's so much, there's so much there to um, cultivate and bring forward, um, which is mostly done by the organization itself. And at least speaking for myself, I am mostly just a midwife or, you know, something doula, right, in that process. Uh, yeah, I like I like the phrase of a midwife or a doula. I've been thinking of it sometimes as um, I, I'm acting as a sheepdog, but that doesn't really put my clients in a good position in terms of being the sheep. So I don't really mean that, but it's more like I'm going to nudge over here and nudge over there. And we're going to kind of head in this direction, but we're all doing it together and 
we're gonna get there and always trusting like trust it's okay we're gonna get there exactly. it may feel messy right now but we're gonna get there yeah we all have to wander in the wilderness right it's yeah, it's part yeah. of the process and that's you know also part i think of the storytelling right that, that that there's nothing wrong with wandering in the wilderness it's it's necessary for us as people and, and as organizations to have those periods of time so that because they're really fruitful right they they lead to huge discoveries so yeah yeah, and, and thinking about that work um, that you and I both do helping organizations and groups really surfeit their, their visions, their aims, and then and then come, you know, work towards coming to agreement to a path forward in a, in a way that they're going to try to get there. One of the things that often happens in that process is framing stories. You know, it could be sharing the story of a founding of the organization and then you know, sh sharing that with newer participants, but then what meaning are they making of it? It might be, you know, sharing stories of joy, triumph, that, you know, wandering in the wilderness that you just talked about. Um, it might be sharing stories of misunderstanding and hurt. I mean, lots of stories get told through these processes. And, and how have you seen this process of sharing and reframing kind of show up in your work? That's a great question. <laughs> I would say that they're, first of all, that stories and history are alive, right? So they're constantly changing um, and we need to allow them to change and acknowledge when they're changing, right? And how they're changing, not make that some, you know, sort of magic trick and never to be mentioned. But the idea that history, history of an organization or history in general is alive, I think is really important um, because it allows us to evolve, right? And to see the same situation with fresh eyes. And of course, that's what some of the newer folks coming into organizations often do, right? Or, or people on the outside looking into organizations do that they can say, like a new board member can say like, okay, well, that's so interesting. Thank you for telling me that story. And it sounds like this is how you interpret that story. I interpret that story looking from my vantage point, I interpret that story a different way, right? And a, a, someone like a new board member or a new executive director may be taking over for a founder, which of course is a, is a particularly um, important and challenging role that the there is, there is the opportunity to really, as you said, reframe at that time and to say, you know, like some of the stories of grand success viewed from a current lens are not as successful, right? And some of those pain points are have actually been absolutely essential for the organization to get to where it is now, or for me to, you know, as a new, a new ED to even get in the door. Let's say I'm a person of color and, they're, and it's an organization serving primarily and working primarily, not serving, I so don't like that word, but working primarily um, in black and brown communities that, um, that, that, that what has changed in the story has, is partly what has allowed those, those leaps and bounds forward um, to happen. And so when we talk about when we talk about stories to me it's just really important that they be alive and that we constantly be examining like what is this what's the, what is the what is the juice in this story now how does that tell us about our past and how can that inform our future um so i think there's a lot there that can be mined over time and that there are ways that stories in, invite people in to the organization and there are ways that stories kind of keep people out. So for us all to be really mindful about how that all works and what the opportunities are to ex extend the circle um, so that we have you know, more and more perspectives and more and more stories that actually serve, serve us moving into service in the present moment and moving toward the next present moment. Yeah, I, I started, well, I guess, back in college, I, I was a history major. And so one of the things that I've really appreciated, um, maybe beginning at that time, um, which it, at this point is pretty much ancient history, and, and uh, uh, but, but more and more so 
in, in the present is um, people's greater awareness of, I, I feel like history used to be, and this could be, you know, history at the big level, but then history at the organizational level too, used to be seen as kind of a fixed thing. And, you know, there was an objective history and the understanding and, and appreciation now of how there was someone telling that history and they had a particular point of view and a particular experience of it. <clears throat> and so then what are all the other stories that need to be told as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that whole idea that history is written by the so-called winner, right? I think that's all wrapped up in what you're talking about. And one certainly of the primary opportunities for so many nonprofits is to, and especially ones that are white-led, um, is to really start listening a lot more, especially if they're working um, well, and not just white-led organizations, but organizations generally also to listen more deeply to stories, right, from the communities that they are a part of or not as much a part of as they wish that they were. Because that's, you know, that's where so much wisdom wisdom rests. And it is in storytelling that um, many learnings, many um, examples of resilience and creativity uh, and perseverance live and live actively. And I think one of the things that is really important to think about for organizations, their leaders and, and me and you, hopefully, you know, all of us is to think about the fact that from, you know, what we know from, let's say, let, let's just say from science, what we know from science is that um, neural pathways are really important and the what we focus on grows, right? That's what we're learning about the brain, what we focus on grows. And so there's been, you know, super interesting science around that, that, you know, like, what fires together, wires together in terms of neurons and all of that kind of thing. And I have no expertise in, in this arena. So I'm just saying that sort of as a general idea. And so when we hold on to stories that are particularly negative, that are no longer serving us as a learning, you know, as an area of learning, then those stories actually hold us back, right? We kind of develop a rut you know, uh, we go around that same track and we develop a rut. And so it's really important too for us to think as an organization, as individuals, what are the stories that are, you know, they can be really tough stories and they're still serving us, right? Because they're helping us, they're helping propel us into perhaps an uncomfortable but important way forward. So there are those stories, but then there are the stories that have basically outlived their purpose. And we really need to be examining how to, and, and practicing how to move away from those stories um, so that we don't get stuck. You know, so many organizations are stuck. And so I think there's a lot to think about relative to our own stories. And also, as you said, the stories that we have absorbed from, you know, from, that whoever the teller of the story was and whether that teller is, is still relevant and um, important for us, our organizations, our communities now is, a, is an important question. And I think people often think about that dynamic at the individual level, like what, what do I need to let go of, of the stories about, you know, that, that, or the maxims that maybe I've learned over time or think that, you know, I act in a certain way and so I need to, let go of this, that, or the other, but I, I don't feel like um, folks ne necessarily think about it uh, when it's a whole group of people working together towards towards something. Um, can you can you give me an example of what you're talking about? So um, I think a lot of organizations, and especially within white supremacy culture, are think you know 
well, this is how we've always done it. And there are reasons why we've done it. They, um, they, and they have a whole narrative around why, right? Why we do it this way and we don't do it that way. We tried it, it didn't work, you know, all that kind of thing. And especially when new people come in, either on the board or on staff or volunteers um, or other community members, and they have, they have an idea and they're told, you know, we, we already tried that, it didn't work or, you know, whatever, you know, there are those, there are those stories. And so I think the opportunity is really to unpack all of that and say, you know, why, why are, why are we thinking this? Why, why do we stick to this particular, particular approach? And there are times when they're going to conclude that there are good reasons for that and they can, you know, they should be in, in genuine conversation, authentic conversation with other folks about that um, if they make those choices. But I think the, the trick is that, especially um, in, you know, white dominant culture kinds of circles, the trick is that there's just such a big echo chamber, right? And so it's really hard to get away from those stories. And so I think for organizations to become more vulnerable, right? You know, like, again, as you said, there's, there's a lot of work being done in, on the individual level, right, to Renee Brown and all of these folks who are, you know, talking about research on vulnerability. And Brene Brown and those folks are also now talking about the about vulnerability within organizations too, right? So that's not, it, it's, it's not just on the individual level. But there are so many chances for us to think and open up to other possibilities and to be humble about what we don't know, right? And what other other individuals, other communities, other organizations can potentially um, help us learn, right? And so I think the chance to be in authentic dialogue with people with no particular um, prescribed outcome, right? That relationship building and the sharing of stories within an organization and within a community, that those kinds of things really open up a lot of possibilities for us that we were just not aware of. Um, we've, we've, most, most organizations really benefit from that porousness just like individuals do, right? I might say all organizations do, but I'll say at least most. Um, and we can we can go far with with those possibilities. And we have to re recognize that all of this takes time, right? So part of this is just oftentimes is slowing it down. We're not we're not he hearing one another's stories with the intention that we are immediately going to shift that into our newest project that our organization is going to launch. We're actually developing relationships so and hearing stories and hearing old stories freshly and hearing new stories so that we can begin to think about where we can um, best show up as an organization, um, which may be where we've shown up before, but it could also be other places and spaces. And so to really give time and space for that. And of course, that's, you know, kind of one of the paradoxes of our time that there's great urgency for change. We are, we are in the midst of a huge era of change on multiple levels, I think. And there is the, there is the temptation of rushing and rushing tends to bypass, as we hear from many people of color, right? Rushing tends to bypass a lot of what's really foundational to true change. Um, and so if an organization really wants to invest in being part of, you know, broader change work, then often slowing things down um, is an important, an important way to be, you know, as, and it is an important stance, in other words, an important posture but it's 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 both and right there is urgency and there is the need for stillness and openness and listening um and and being very attentive to who we're whom we're listening to
Yeah, there were a lot, lot, lot of uh, things in that that I want to follow up on. Um, yeah, I think that that temptation, and I would say even it's it's more than a temptation. It's like a cultural imperative in our society to always be running faster than you can possibly run, and the and you know the scarcity that that that. Um, has baked into the the nonprofit sector. It seems so. It seems challenging even to slow down enough to do a pretty traditional strategic planning process or other planning process. And then to, and I think people get anxious and nervous if it's like, wow, you want me to talk to all these different people, and we're gonna have all these voices. It's just gonna be this cacophony of opinions how on earth are we going to synthesize it and come to some agreement um and and yet uh as you've said i think and you talked about that those ruts that that organizations get in and i can even think about with that um kind of like we got to hurry up and do it yesterday uh sense of urgency that we also are in this rut of you know, putting a Band-Aid on things versus really looking to how can we imagine a really different uh, whatever it might be. For whatever whatever um, mission the organization is focused on and then their, their mission within a broader system usually, um, to even take the time to think about, you know, what could be different from what is right now. It's easy to, not always easy, it's often, it, it but it's easier, I think, to, to kind of identify the, the challenges, the problems, all the ways in which the system is broken. But I think it's really challenging for folks to even imagine what might, what could be the more positive possibility. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And yeah, and again, just like you said about what I said, I, there are many ways to, many different threads there to pick up on. Um, so I think the piece around urgency culture is, is essential to the conversation, right? So I have this, I have this piece of paper that I have written on, um, Geologic, it says geologic time, right? So what it says is the universe is 13.8 billion years old. Earth is 4.6 billion years old. And humans have been here for about 10,000 years. And that's the equivalent of 12 seconds, right? So I think, and the reason why I think this is helpful is one, we're just a very young species, right? And we are, we're children, you know, <laughs> you know, as a species, we're still children. And so we have a huge amount of responsibility and we can see that obviously in sort of what in our environmental situation, we can see that in many different arenas. So there is urgency. Um, and we don't have all the tools uh, in the sense of everything already having been created. We're in a, we're in a period of great uh, reckoning and, and great possibility. And there's precariousness in that, right? Because we aren't over the, at all, we are not at all over the crest of the hill to mix a metaphor. And so we, I think the idea of, especially for service-oriented organizations, that they've—that's where they've—that's uh, where they've always put their their emphasis. We know that there is a need on those levels, um, but the idea that there are many ways that we're not working ourselves at all out of the out of the need for uh, a service, a nonprofit service-oriented sector, because we are not, as you said, addressing the systems level issues. 
And how can one of those organizations slow down enough to um, have an opportunity to even, you know, think beyond the fact that we, you know, we have people, we have people sleeping on the doorstep, you know, waiting for, waiting for shelter, food, et cetera. Um, and of course, all of these things to me bring us to bigger questions around how late stage capitalism and the patriarchy and white supremacy culture, you know, sort of collude to keep things exactly like this that serve, you know, a very small percentage of humanity. And I would say ultimately don't serve any of humanity um, because, you know, there's so much, there's so much loss for everyone and, and separation for everyone. And, you know, perhaps as mentioned here, um, Tema Oaken um, has a new website uh, that called Divorcing White Supremacy Culture that um, that looks a lot at, you know, sort of white supremacy, what white supremacy has done to white people as well as to people of color, you know, so there are, there's loss, there's so much loss, you know, being so separate. Um, and so I think that whole question around how to create space away from, you know, how to kind of um, shift from urgency enough to have space for being creative and thinking about the possibilities is essential or we're just gonna be on the same hamster wheel forever, right? And I think that some of the movement building that's been happening, movement for black lives, et cetera, you know, where there's much more of a focus on sustainability, like how does this work sustainable? How do we take care of ourselves and one another on multiple levels gives, you know, those kinds of, and there are many nonprofits that are shifting more and more to, in those ways. And I think there are black and brown nonprofits that have been like that forever. And some, you know, some white nonprofits, white led nonprofits too, black and brown led nonprofits maybe I think being in the lead, but where there is the sense that yes, we are, you know, we are handing out bags of groceries, et cetera. And we have to be thinking about what else is possible here. We wanna think intern internally for our organization. We wanna live in our organization in a way that we're, what we're trying to manifest externally uh, beyond the walls of our organization, we need to manifest internally because if we're whole, then that supports the wholeness of the broader community, right? And so I think even things, very basic things that seem impossible were made possible or suddenly possible during COVID, right? So we have to take all those learnings forward with us and those stories of how we did things that we thought our organization could never do. And I don't mean the, you know, heroic things, I mean the internal thing. I, heroic is also another thing, but I mean the internal things like, we realized that our staff was totally burned out and we found ways to give people way more time off or to change our policies on how people work. You know, people working from home, which works for some people, doesn't work for other people, right? You know, like all of these kinds of things, like a lot is possible and if we tell the stories of what we do in times of hardship that are the stories of what is possible and what creativity and, um, and courage lent us to create new things, then those, again, the end of COVID does not mean the end of those things. It just means, oh, we figured out that we're even stronger and there are more possibilities than we thought and let's continue continue to work in that direction. So as we think about not getting back on the hamster wheel, are we gonna devote a certain percentage of our time to systems work, even if we are in a service arena? Are we, if we're not gonna do that, how can we at least support those efforts of our colleague activists and other organizations in how they're pursuing those things? How do we how do we message around those systems questions with our funders, with our other stakeholders, so that so that everyone is is more engaged in the bigger picture? Because we have to build the 
we have to build the demand, the demand for systems change. And that has to be ongoing, right? And so the way that we tell those stories, um, the way that we innovate, the way we um, take care of one another are all parts of parts of that systems change process to me, among others, right? Those are some of them. Yeah, and a couple of different things come to mind. One, I hope it's late stage capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like some people are banking on that, and we'll see. Um, but it would be good. It would be good. Uh, well, we assume it would be good of whatever would come on the other <laughs> side. Um, but, you, you know, you talked about kind of what showed up in this last year, how organizations just kind of shifted on a dime in a lot of different ways in ways that they never thought were possible or never had, you know, never had thought about. Um, so they demonstrated to themselves their capacity for very fast change. So I think we were talking about just this idea that the, that what was possible in COVID is ongoingly possible, right? That people are creative, people are courageous. They're doing, they can, they can, we can take care of one another. What we're trying to manifest. Oh, yeah. So what, the, yeah, the other thing that I was going to say was, um, so all, what also occurs to me is, yeah, I feel like in the past, there's been this very much an either or, either you do systems work or you do direct service. And even, um, I remember there was a, a book that came out, uh, and I'll have to look it up, um, it's probably 10 or 15 years ago, that was a kind of like a study of, you know, what are the most effective nonprofits and, and even then their findings were that the organizations that do both, that do service, that informs their advocacy are really um, super effective. And then of course you go to the next level of those, the movement level where um, people are approaching that very differently now in terms of it being a network and, and not so you know uh, caught up in individual organizations and being more fluid in how they organize that um, and, and, and also, um, yeah, just an appreciation for, um, I don't know which generation, the, the next generation, multi-next generations of, of activists who are really putting um, care for each other, care for themselves, care for each other front and center to be able to, um, to be able to be in it for the long haul. Because I think, uh, you know, part of what I'm thinking about that late stage capitalism, I think, well, actually in the United States where we have the most extreme version of capitalism and we have the biggest nonprofit sector, I think, I'll have to check that. But I, it, to me, it's, it's that sector was, it's just like a giant Band-Aid to the wound that, that capitalism has, has inflicted on us. Um, so, you know, and I'll stay in it because I, it's the best Band-Aid I can find um, for now. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a big, it's a big, big thing. And, um, and, you know, you and I could have a whole separate conversation and you could have this conversation with someone way uh, more intelligent and on it than I am. But, the, but those questions about the degree to which you know, the nonprofit sector is serving as a Band-Aid, right? And it's the same questions that are really interesting questions in the mutual aid movement, right? Like, so there's much that's possible in, um, in mutual aid, right? Sort of grassroots uh, support um, and, you know, person to person, neighbor to neighbor, you know, kinds of support, which really grew a lot in, uh, during COVID in the United States and and beyond, and and there's a you know a big debate in that community as I understand it um, about like is this really our job like you know shouldn't shouldn't the government be taking care of this so and then other people who are like you know this is this is part of um, community sovereignty right like community self-help, et cetera. So there are lots of questions around all of that. And certainly in the nonprofit sector, you know, how are we, how are we supporting, um, how are we supporting a system that, 
how are we supporting the larger system that uh, that isn't serving a lot of, of our community members? So I think there are lots and lots of questions in all of that. And some of what I take hope from is that piece around we have activists and movements who are pushing, right? And so when the more traditional, shall I say, you know, nonprofit sector is in good dialogue with uh, movement folks, um, there, there's lots of zest there, right? There are lots of, there are lots of um, aha moments. And so I think we just have to continue again, it's that porousness, it's that sharing of stories um, that, that help. And just as you said earlier, you know, when organizations are doing some, you know, sort of some work in the advocacy, they have one foot in the advocacy world and one foot in the direct service world, then lots of things are possible because they have a, uh, they have a more nuanced appreciation of, of, a, of it all. And they can make, you know, they can make key choices around how they're using their resources and they can tell a lot of stories from, um, from multiple perspectives and hopefully as much as possible, people speaking for themselves, right? Rather than others speaking for them. But yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot we could talk about there. Yeah, and, and I just wanna, um, well, since we're talking about reframing, I just wanna put a caveat on my description of the whole sector as a Band-Aid that, um, you know, that's, to me, that's more a reflection on our economic and other systems just not working for folks. And so people have tried to step into that void and but it, but it does come to the question of um, who's you know whose job is it uh, and and what needs to shift to have less need for all you know uh, so that so that organizations that are trying to end hunger and end homelessness and, and all those things can actually get to those ends. Um, yeah. So so not denigrating anyone's work because I'm really glad that there are folks doing it and that's why I love to work with organizations and help them get clear about how they want to move forward um, and stepping back I'm appreciating the questions that the younger generations are asking about the role of the different sectors of our if you only want to think about it as the economy but our culture our, our economy so mm -hmm. absolutely and we could throw in there you know sort of the, the power that billionaires have in this country, right, for setting agendas. So, you know, again, we could have, uh, you know, a whole separate conversation about about all of that, because there are, there are all those questions. Whose job is this? Do we actually want, who do we want to have this job, even if it is technically their job, you know? So there are lots of things there. <laughs> right, right, right. Um. So as we're starting to see the possible close of this chapter with the pandemic, um, what are you hoping organizations will keep with them from this time as we move forward? And, and what have you kind of witnessed people learning? We talked a little bit about that before, but I'm curious about some other examples. Yeah, so I think the primary piece is that I'm hoping that people keep open to the possibilities that they somehow manage to tap into during COVID, you know, so crisis, crisis provides opportunity. I don't say that in a light way because the suffering has been immense, right? And disproportionate. So all of that being said, that um, there, that there was so much nimbleness, there were, there was a lot of new collaboration, there was a lot of new thinking, a lot of busting through barriers, right? And so all of those things I think are really important to keep momentum around and not go back to sleep, right? You know, it'd be easy just to like, just let out a big sigh of relief and be like, okay, wow, now we can get back to where we were. And, you know, as many people are saying, that is not, that A is not possible and B is not advisable, right? Because what we actually wanna do is keep catalyzing right and keep an eye on the big picture you know why are we here like we were talking about earlier why are we here how what is our unique unique role at this time and how can we make sure that we are 
part of the larger um, momentum for deeper, deeper solutions, greater sustainability, et cetera. And so one thing that I think they're important to ensure happens, and this is very specific, is that there are a lot more, there's a lot more recognition of, of the great possibility and, and gift of black and brown executive directors and others in leadership positions. And I think as those positions transition out of white leadership, it's really, really important that those leaders get our support our support, whether we're board members, whether we're other staff members, whether we are donors, because we know that funding often decreases when black and brown people become executive directors. So anyway, so there's lots of specifics like that, like let us, let's make sure that we give as much trust and support and even more support because they're working in a racist system to these new these new but new but not new right these folks who've been waiting in the wings forever who've been overlooked and bypassed a million times for these positions so i think that's an example of something that's happening but we need to we need to usher it in in a way that um supports success like would be done with with white leaders uh, and has always been done kind of invisibly with white leaders so i'd say that's an example i think the you know work we've been talking about about where there's more conversation between activists and sort of more and others in the nonprofit sphere or grassroots activists and people in the nonprofit in the formal nonprofit sphere, as well as grassroots groups um, that are not C3s. There's a lot of there's a lot of possibility in bringing all those folks into into conversation, storytelling, deep deep consideration of common common interests, which is not necessarily the first thing that people recognize, but we have common interests in what I would call, you know, collective liberation. And so, and that looks different and different, you know, people might not use that term, but I think that's where, we'll, where I hope we are heading. And so how can we have those conversations? So being bold, right? Like there are st many studies have shown, you know, like even not, not like COVID related, but when, in times where there, where political situations did not support, did not support a lot of creativity and and possibility for nonprofits, the nonprofits that still went for it were much more successful in getting done what they wanted to do than those who like who stepped back and just said, you know, we're going to just, you know, we're going to just shelter in place until the storm has passed. So let's do this thing, right? Like this is this is the time. We are we are in a period of momentum and let's just let's keep it going. And at the same time take care like you and I were both talking about, take care of our people, our people being broadly defined, right? Like take care of all the people that are part of this and see this as a long term. But this is the long game, right? So we we need to do this in sustainable ways. What do you feel like you've learned personally through this last year, year and a half? Yeah. Um, I've learned that I need more time in nature. Um, I've learned that sometimes I need to really step back and make a lot more space for other, other people. Um, and as a facilitator, that's a great, you know, there's a great dance in that, right? Like what is, what's my role in this very moment? What's not my role? And can I just trust in that more? So I feel like there's been a lot for me this year or 15 months that's about that is about uh, trusting, trusting in the group. Um, I've, I've had a lot less time alone than I have in the past and because I'm in a pod. And so it, I have I have loved that. And I also have recognized I really need more alone time. Like that's really important for my well-being. And so the way that I've been able to craft that in the past has, has not been so conscious for me. And now I need to, you know, I need it to be much more conscious so that I can make it happen.
Um, and um, it's renewed my faith in, in possibility. I, 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 at this time, has renewed my faith in possibility, which is very different from what some people would say. But, you know, as we've been talking about, there have been so many things that have had light shined on them, which is absolutely essential for change. There have been amazing steps forward and I am eager to see that continue and in my little way be part of that. We'll be back after this quick break. Mission Impact is sponsored by Grace Social Sector Consulting. Grace Social Sector Consulting helps nonprofits and associations become more strategic and innovative for greater mission impact. Download free resources on strategic planning, program portfolio review, design thinking, and more at gracesocialsector.com slash resources. We're back on Mission Impact. So one of the things that I do at the end of each interview is pull out one of my uh, icebreaker card questions. Mm -hmm. And since we've been talking about the long term and the long game and movements and systems, the question I have for you is, what are you most looking forward to in the next 10 years? Oh my gracious, what a great question. I am most looking forward to, and this is really aspirational, I am most looking forward to greater and greater recognition among people and communities, among and across people and communities, and really the planet of deep interconnection and that the wellness of of one it relates to the wellness of all and the wellness of all relates to the wellness of one and so i feel like if we can continue to deepen our commitment to that that unbelievable things are possible and then maybe more a little bit more on the short term what are you excited about what's emerging in your work what's coming up for you yeah i'm really excited to be in conversation with a funder around ways that they can help uh, that they can bring about greater equity in the ways that they operate those are the ways that they operate internally and the ways that they operate externally the way that they relate to their uh, funding partners what their expectations are of their funding partners, what their expectations are of themselves, um, and what and how they relate to their community um, and communities, and the ways that they will continue to try to influence the funder world um, so that there are more possibilities. Because of course, this is another huge arena that you and I really didn't talk about today, but you know, where funders are within the nonprofit world, funders are a really essential uh, piece of the puzzle and, and they're part of systems change, right? So I love the possibilities and this particular funder is very, very committed to the work. So I'm super excited about that. And um, I also, really love the opportunity that I have right now to be doing some coaching with some executive directors and some other folks in these kinds of spaces and topics, but also really, um, as we were talking about at the beginning, really diving into what, what is, what is my why, meaning there is not mine, but what is, what is my why for now? Like what, what is that? Where is the spark? Um, and what is my place in co-creating, you know, the world. And so I just always gain so much from my clients, both, both the individuals and, and the organizations in, in those realms. All right. Well, thank you so much for bringing your spark to this uh, podcast. It's been great to talk to you. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much, Carol. It's been a real pleasure. And I really enjoyed listening to your podcast and look forward to more of your conversations ahead. All right. Thank you.
My conversation with Kristen really got me thinking. The past year and a half of the pandemic has brought so many different reckonings, and I appreciate how it has brought working towards equity front and center in the sector, and how so often the sector has fallen short. And it makes me think about the evolution of the sector over the course of my career. When I started working in nonprofit organizations in the 90s after the Reagan revolution, the whole country had shifted to the right and embraced a business mindset. Nonprofits were told to act more like businesses, embracing marketing and branding. There was a push to professionalization of so many areas. Master's degrees in nonprofit management were designed and launched. And the push to demonstrating impact, measuring success, and proving it to funders. And for associations, it was all about diversification of revenue sources. And now a generation later, the conversation has shifted to examining the undergirdings of the sector itself, the nonprofit industrial complex and its implications. And so many things assumed to be just how the things are and part of the water we swim in are being questioned. I welcome these, this deep examination of the role of the sector in our economy. And I appreciate all the people who have stepped into the void and the multiple wounds that our version of capitalism here in the United States creates to try and make things better. At the immediate and direct service, helping people in need today, as well as those working to imagine how to repair and move systems through policy changes and, and the movements that undergird them. I say thank you to everyone and your contributions. Thanks for listening to this episode. I really appreciate the time you spend with me and my guests. You can find out how to connect with Kristen, as well as the links and resources that she mentioned during the show in the show notes at missionimpactpodcast.com slash show notes. I want to thank Nora Strauss Riggs for their support in editing and production, as well as April Custer of 100 Ninjas for her production support. If you have a minute, take a minute to rate and review Mission Impact on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the podcast, and we truly appreciate it. 